0: Characters of the Passion by Venerable Fulton J. Sheen One wonders if there are really any new things in the world, or if only the same things are happening to different people. Take, for example, the relation of politics and religion. Those who have their finger on the pulse of contemporary civilization have probably noted that there are two contradictory charges against religion today. The first is that religion is not political enough. The other is that religion is too political. On the one hand, the church is blamed for being too divine, and on the other, for not being divine enough. It is hated because it is too heavenly, and hated because it is too earthly. Particularly significant it is that these were the very two charges for which Christ himself was condemned. The religious judges, Annas and Caiaphas, found him too religious. The political judges, Pilate and Herod, found him too political. Caiaphas, the religious judge, standing before his judgment seat, asked the question, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us if thou be the Christ, the Son of God. As the question rang out through the marble hall and was succeeded by a silence vibrant with emotion, Christ finally raised his eyes to the judge and answered, Thou hast said it. A gleam of satisfaction lighted the judge's face. At last he had triumphed, but he must not show it, and under the veil of horrified indignation at the insult offered to God's supreme majesty by declaring himself to be God, he rent his garments from bottom to top, crying out, He hath blasphemed. Christ is too religious, too heavenly, too infallible, too spiritual, too much interested in souls, too divine. Because he was too religious, he was not political enough. The religious judges said that he had no concern for the fact that the Romans were their masters, and that they might take away their country. By talking about a spiritual kingdom, a higher moral law, and his divinity, and by becoming the leader of a spiritual crusade, he was accused of being indifferent to the needs of the people and national well-being. The Romans would not tolerate anyone with such an appeal. He would bring down retribution from Rome. Their armies would come and destroy them. After all, what good is religion anyway if it has no part in the political, economic, and societal setup of a country? So Caiaphas decided, better let the one man die rather than the whole nation should perish within a few hours our blessed lord who was accused of being too disinterested in politics is charged with being too interested in it the mob who had their prisoner bound with rope stopped outside pilate's door sill which marked the confines of a roman house pilate warned of their coming went out to meet the accusers jesus and pilate were face to face pilate looked at the figure before him silent and unmoved crimson with his own blood, with livid red marks across his face, already the object of gross mistreatment before he had been condemned. Turning to the howling mob, Pilate asked, What accusation bring you against this man? If the charge was that he blasphemed by calling himself God, Pilate would only have smiled. He had his own gods, and each day sprinkled incense before them. What cared he about their divinities? But there was one other charge about Christ that could be hurled, and it was the opposite one. Namely, that he was too political, that he was not sufficiently divine, that he meddled in national affairs, that he was not patriotic. And in answer to Pilate's question, there was hurled against the balustrade of his temple the deafening roar of three charges. We have found this man perverting our nation, and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he is Christ the King. In other words, Christ is a fascist. And from that day to this, these two contradictory charges have been leveled against the person of Christ and his body, the church. His church is accused of not being political enough when it condemns Nazism and fascism. It is accused of being too political when it condemns communism. It is too unpolitical when it does not condemn a political regime which some other political systems dislike but which allows religious freedom. It is said to be too political or fascist when it condemns a political regime which completely suppresses all religion. Curious indeed it is that the very ones who a decade ago did their utmost to exile the church from exerting her influence in education and the social life are today the very ones who denounce the church for not doing more to save the world from which it is exiled. The world drives the church out of the house and then complains that the church has not kept the house in order. Would to heaven that man were forced to give definitions of words. Is the church fascist? If fascism means, as it does, the supremacy of the state or nation over the individual, with consequent suppression of rights or liberties, then the church is anti-fascist, as the encyclical against fascism so well proves. If by fascism is meant anti-communism and dislike of a system which suppresses the liberties, then the church is fascist. But so is every American who loves the democratic way of life more than the totalitarian. In truth, the proper way to handle this confusion of tongues is to speak of all forms of totalitarianism as fascism. This divides them into black, brown, and red. Hence, we ought to speak of communism from this time on as red fascism. There is an essential resemblance between fascism, nazism, and communism. Fascism is the subordination of the person to the state, nazism to the race, and communism to the classes. The only difference between these three forms of totalitarianism is the difference between burglary, larceny, and stealing. What is the logic of these contradictory charges? Apparently, the world figures that the Church is something to be used, a rather refining influence whose sole business is to make moral whoopee for certain kinds of politics. When there is an accidental coincidence of the spiritual and the political, as there was on Palm Sunday, then there is a moment of peace. But it is a false peace, which is the prelude to Good Friday. It is the second charge that needs specific consideration, namely, that the Church is interfering in politics. Is this true? It all depends upon what you mean by politics. If by interference in politics is meant using influence to favor a particular regime, party, or system, which respects the basic rights and freedom of persons which come from God, the answer is emphatically no, the church does not interfere in politics. If by interference in politics is meant judging or condemning a philosophy of life that makes the party or the state or the class or the race the source of all rights and which usurps the soul and enthrones party over conscience and denies those basic rights for which this war was fought, the answer is emphatically yes the Church does judge such a philosophy. But when it does this, it is not interfering with politics, for such politics is no longer politics, but theology. When a state sets itself up as absolute as God, when it claims sovereignty over the soul, when it destroys freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, then the state has ceased to be political and has begun to be a counter-Church. As long as politics is politics, the Church has nothing to say. It is totally indifferent to any regime. The church adapts itself to all governments on condition that they respect liberty of conscience. It is indifferent as to whether people choose to live under a monarchy, republic, democracy, or even a military dictatorship, provided these governments grant the basic freedoms. If by interference in politics is meant the interference by the clergy in the political realm of the state, the church is unalterably opposed to it, for the church teaches that the state is supreme in the temporal order. But when politics ceases to be politics and begins to be a religion, When it claims supremacy over the soul of man, when it reduces him to a grape for the sake of the line of collectivity, when it limits his destiny to be a servant of Moloch, when it denies both the freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, when it competes with religion on its own ground, the immortal soul that is destined for God, then religion protests. And when it does, its protest is not against politics, but against the counter-religion that is anti-religious. A human organism can adapt itself to the torrid heat of the equator or to the glacial cold of the north, but it cannot live without air. The church in like manner can adapt itself to every form of politics, but it cannot live without the air of freedom. Never before in history has the spiritual been so unprotected against the political. Never before has the political so usurped the spiritual. It was Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate. It was not Pontius Pilate who suffered under Jesus Christ. The grave danger today is not religion in politics, but politics in religion. For the first time in Christian history, politics, which began by divorcing itself from morality and religion, has seen that man cannot live by bread alone, so it has attempted to capture his soul by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of a dictator. For the first time in Western Christian civilization, the kingdom of anti-God has acquired political form and social substance and stands over and against Christianity as a counter-church, with its own dogmas, its own scriptures, its own infallibility, its own hierarchy, its own visible head, its own missionaries, and its own invisible head, too terrible to be named. In certain countries today, religion exists only by sufferance of a political dictator. Without actively persecuting the church, it usurps its functions, gives bread cards only to those who conspire against religion, attempts to create an ideological uniformity by liquidating anyone who is opposed to that ideology, and by sheer weight of state-inspired propaganda would affect the mass organization of society on a purely secular and anti-religious basis. Culture today is becoming politicized. The modern state is extending dominance over areas outside its province family, education, and the soul. It is concentrating public opinion in fewer and fewer hands, which becomes the more dangerous because of the mechanical way in which propaganda can be disseminated. It seeks to achieve its ends by extra-parliamentary means, The idea of a community of workers is replaced by mass cooperation on a non-personal basis. Contract has taken the place of responsibility. The lines are becoming clear-cut. The conflict of the future will be between a god religion and a state religion, between Christ and antichrist in political disguise. History attests that religion has not encroached upon the temporal sphere, but rather jealous temporal rulers have invaded the spiritual. Sometimes these rulers were kings and princes, even so-called Catholic defenders of the faith. Today they are dictators. But the problem is ever the same, the invasion of the spiritual by the political. If it be objected that religion once made Henry come to Canossa, let it be stated that it was for exactly the same reason that the world made war against Hitler, namely because of his usurpation of spiritual freedom. The difference between Henry's time and Hitler's is that when religion had some influence in the world and kings had consciences, it was possible for the church to inspire them to penance. With that moral authority rejected, now the nations have to spend $523 billion and millions of lives to impress some of the dictators with the same fact. There is something alarming about that brief description of how our Lord died. No other name is mentioned in the creed except the name of one judge. Judas, Annas, and Caiaphas are not mentioned. The earthly life of our Lord is quickly passed over, but one significant detail is retained. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is a record not only of a historical fact, but also a prophecy of what will happen to Christ in his mystical body from time to time. Namely, his church in the dark days of history will go down to a seemingly final death and persecution, suffering under Pontius Pilate, the power of an omnipotent state. It may do religion no good to oppose state religion, for the modern state is armed and the church is not. Religion may even be buffeted between an ancient judge who thinks that it is expedient that one man die rather than the whole nation perish, and a modern judge who feels that it is expedient that all the people should die for one man who is a dictator. It may hear from the lips of modern pilots the words of power, Know you not that I have the power to condemn you? But there will always come back to them the soft voice of Christ. You would not have the power unless it were given to you from above. Even though Christ himself would not deliver us from the power of the totalitarian state, as he did not deliver himself, we must see his purpose in it all. Maybe his children are being persecuted by the world in order that they might withdraw themselves from the world. Maybe his most violent enemies may be doing his work negatively, for it could be the mission of totalitarianism to preside over the liquidation of a modern world that became indifferent to God and his moral laws. Maybe those of us who did not care whether God exists or not may yet suffer from those whom we taught through Feuerbach and Hegel to exile him altogether. Maybe the very secularism from which we suffer is a reaction against our own spiritual infirmity. Maybe the growth of atheism and totalitarianism is the measure of our want of zeal and piety, and the proof of our unfulfilled Christian duties. Not until we bear the marks of Christ will we be liberated in his victory. Maybe those Christians who, in the last century, identified religion with naive optimism and translated Darwinism into economic language of an unlimited prosperity, must yet learn that Christ is not of the times, lest he should perchance be widowed by the times. Maybe it is our loss of supernatural standards, our decline of the family, our want of reverence for others, our growing selfishness, that have made this state of affairs possible. Maybe we are to learn the hard way that our destiny is not to be found in the dimensions of temporal history, For the Church is, as Newman said, a universal empire without earthly arms, temporal pretensions without temporal sanctions, a claim to rule without the power to enforce, a continual tendency to acquire with a continual exposure to be dispossessed, greatness of mind with weakness of body. But whatever be the reason for these trying days, of this we may be certain. The Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate signed Pilate's death warrant. It was not Pilate who signed Christ's. Christ's church will be attacked, scorned, and ridiculed, but it will never be destroyed. The enemies of God will never be able to dethrone the heavens of God, nor to empty the tabernacles of their Eucharistic Lord, nor to cut off all absolving hands, but they may devastate the earth. The bald fact the enemies of God must face is that modern civilization has conquered the world, but in doing so has lost its soul. And in losing its soul, it will lose the very world it gained. Even our own so-called liberal culture in the United States, which has tried to avoid complete secularization by leaving little zones of individual freedom, is in danger of forgetting that these zones were preserved only because religion was in their soul. And as religion fades, so will freedom, for only where the Spirit of God is, is there liberty. Politics has become so all-possessive of life that by impertinence it thinks the only philosophy a person can hold is the right or the left. This question puts out all the lights of religion, so they can call all the cats gray. It assumes that man lives on a purely horizontal plane, and can move only to the right or the left. Had we eyes less material, we would see that there are two other directions where a man with a soul may look, the vertical directions of up or down. Both figured in the crucifixion of our Lord. Even those cruel men who crucified knew that these were the directions that counted. So they shouted to him, "'Come down, and we will believe.'" Somehow or other, that echo has been caught up and it is being brooded about the world today. Down with religion, down with capital, down with labor, down with reactionaries, down with progressives. Have we not been tearing down long enough? Can one build a world with the word down? Is there no other cry in our vocabulary? Did not the captain, Christ, give another, If I be lifted up, I will draw all things to myself? Lifted up? Who shall lift us up? crucifying dictators? Maybe, but where shall we be lifted? To the cross, the prelude of the empty tomb, the cross of Christ our Redeemer. Hear that word up, shouted abroad, up from class hatred, up from envy, up from avarice, up from war, up beyond the margin of the world, up beyond the troubled gateways of the stars, up, up, up to God.